0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, keep your Bibles open in Acts 28. Before we jump in and before I pray, I just want to give us a little bit of a heads up of where we're going these next couple of weeks. Next week, we're going to have our focus on Bethlehem College and Seminary, and so we're going to invite a student that attends the North Campus to preach next week. And then following that, we're going to do a three-week series on our mission statement that you can see on our wall. You guys can't see it, but everyone else can. And then after that, we'll have Global Focus. Pastor John Piper will preach the very first week of Global Focus. Then we'll have three weeks on Thanksgiving, and then we've come to Christmas and Advent. Those watching online, we want to welcome you, especially this morning, and we want to invite you to join us in person as we gather together as the people of God. It's so good to see all of you this morning. Would you join me as we pray? Father, you are indeed holy, 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 and so show us the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of Jesus through your holy word now so that we would be increasingly conformed to your image. We would become more holy like our Father in heaven is holy. That we would be transformed and changed. We pray that in Christ's name, amen. Endings matter. Endings matter. How something ends is just as important and oftentimes more important than how something begins. In sports, it's often it doesn't matter how quickly your team kind of gets off the blocks or, or gets the game going. It's how they end the game. That's why in baseball, we pay a lot of money to the pitchers who are called the closers, they specialize in getting those final couple of outs so that they can win the game. Or we pay big money to the hitters who can hit that walk-off home run and win the game. In in basketball, we lionize clutch players who don't crumble under the pressure. You can probably have a debate. If you had three seconds left and, and you're down by two, who do you give the ball to? If you could pick anyone from history, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Steph Curry, or in the NFL, teams practice the two-minute drill or the hurry-up offense so that they can be ready when there's just a few seconds left and we need to score in order to win the game. No one cares that the Vikings had four pretty decent quarters only to lose the game in overtime. True story. (laughs) Endings matter. In literature, last words are powerful and poignant. See if you know this one. So we beat on boats against the current, born back ceaselessly into the past. What's that from? The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Or maybe the kids will know this one. The scar had not pained Harry for 19 years. All was well from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows by J.K. Rowling. This morning, we come to the end of the beginning. We come to the end of the book of Acts, but it's merely just the beginning for the church. Now, the ending of Acts is both fitting and a little bit abrupt, and it's been described often as an enigma. It's difficult to understand or explain. There's all these unanswered questions that come to us at the end of Acts. Well, what happens to Paul? What happens to the trial? Does he end up going to Spain that he writes about in Romans? How does Paul die? How do the other apostles die? What happens to the rest of the church? In the words of Paul Harvey, we want the rest of the story. But Luke, as we've seen throughout this series, is not a haphazard writer. He's a thoughtful and careful and in many ways an exceptional historian. He's crafting this exactly the way that he wants to craft it so that we would ask the right questions and see the right things from this book. So why does Acts end the way that it does that we just heard read for us this morning? Well, let me illustrate it with this final line from the last battles, from the chronicles of Narnia. The last line of the last book says this. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. In Narnia, they're talking about heaven. And yet here, even though the book of Acts ends, it's only begun. The Acts of the church, the Acts of Jesus Christ, the Acts of the apostles, it's only begun. This is the end of the beginning. Jesus continues to build his church through his disciples, proclaiming the gospel through the power of his Holy Spirit. Acts is merely the cover page to a story that continues to be written until this present day and will continue to be written. So our plan this morning is we're going to look at uh, chapter 28 of Acts, verses 16 through 31 in the first half of this sermon. And then part two, we're going to see how this story continues through the major themes in Acts. So in essence, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 28, and then we're going to begin acts 29 so the main point we see in this passage is that though the book ends what continues the gospel though acts ends jesus keeps working though paul exits stage left jesus remains central seated on his throne working out salvation for all those who will believe though luke is finished writing The apostles, the disciples of Jesus, continue to proclaim. And the way Acts ends has massive and glorious implications for us, the church, the continuation of this book this morning, which we'll look at. So we come now to part one, how the story ends. We're looking at Acts 28, 16 to 31, and this could be broken up into three scenes. Paul petitions the Jews, 16 to 22, Then he preaches Jesus 23 to 28, and then he presses on in ministry and concludes with 30 and 31. So Paul petitions the Jews. So we pick up where we left off last week, where Paul finally arrives in Rome. He's encouraged by fellow believers. We can see that in verses 14 and 15, and we're told that Paul's allowed to stay by himself in verse 16. So what's happening here is that Paul is on house arrest. In verse 30, it tells us that he's doing this at his own expense. Essentially, he's renting a small apartment in Rome, able to minister. So he's not kind of imprisoned in the classical sense. And he's under constant surveillance. We see that because there is a soldier that is with him at all times. In verse 20, he references a chain. So probably a chain attached to his wrist or maybe his ankle, and then it's attached to a soldier who would come perhaps every six hours and and watch Paul 24-7. Now, what does Paul do? He gathers the Jews together, and he says three things. The first thing he says is, I'm innocent. I'm not a guilty man. He says that in verse 17. I had done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers. The second thing he says, Rome actually confirmed my innocence. See that in verse 18. When the Romans had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. And the third thing he says, he says, but I appealed to Caesar, which is why I'm here now. Verse 19. But Paul also wants to make a few things clear. He he says, I'm not bringing charges against the people of Israel, against those religious leaders, verse 19. He's not bringing charges of maybe mistreatment or malicious prosecution against his Jews, fellow countrymen. He isn't here trying to get even, but he's here, which it says in verse 20, because of the hope of Israel. Now, what's the hope of Israel? What does he mean by that? The main dispute between Paul and the Jews up to this point has been about Jesus. But no one disputes in Paul's time the life of Jesus, even the ministry of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, or even the death of Jesus. What they would have disputed at that point was the resurrection of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah and Lord, that he's the long-awaited Messiah that has fulfilled all the scriptures in the Old Testament. And yet Paul sees this the resurrection of Jesus, and the identity of Jesus as the very hope of Israel. That's right at the center of this dispute. The Jewish leaders respond almost in a surprising way. We see that in verse 21. They said, we we haven't had any bad reports from Judea, or even letters or people who had visited saying anything bad about you. That's a little bit surprising, but it could be that they're on their way. They didn't take quite as an aggressive trip to get to Rome, or it could be that they're not coming. And yet, these Jews, they say in verse 22, we want to know what you have to say because we know that everywhere this sect is spoken against. And they unwittingly confirm that the gospel is indeed going forth with power. The gospel is advancing. We looked at this last week, Acts 1-8, that you're going to testify me, testify about me in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And now these Jews in Rome have said, oh yeah, we've heard about this Jesus. We've heard about this sect. Everyone speaks against it. So it takes us to verse 23 to 28 where Paul begins to preach Jesus. They come on that appointed day in greater numbers, and it says, From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And this is surprisingly remarkable. Turn all the way back with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Acts 1, verse 3. This is what scholars call an inclusio, where they have the same theme at the very beginning of a book and at the very end. Acts 1, 3. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. And what does Jesus do post-resurrection? He is 40 days with his disciples. What does he speak about? He speaks about the kingdom of God. Now, turn all the way back verse 23 what does paul speak about he's testifying to the kingdom of god and trying to convince them about jesus and then scroll down with me to verse 31 what's paul doing for the next two years he's proclaiming the kingdom of god and teaching about the lord jesus christ now what's the kingdom of god The kingdom of God is shorthand for the entire Christian message. The the life, the ministry, the miracles, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins of all those who will believe. This is the kingdom of God. And it's not just the kingdom, but it's the kingdom and teaching and preaching about Jesus and how Jesus fulfills all that was written about him in the Old Testament. So that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God had promised. This is the kingdom of God. This is what Paul gives his life to. We we don't often use this phrase, kingdom of God, but we often use the phrase gospel. And we don't just mean the formal gospels like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we use gospel in a broader sense. the, The life and ministry of Jesus, everything about Jesus that's needed for salvation. And so Paul was all about Jesus. This characterized Paul's life. When Paul was jostled, what spilled out of him? The kingdom of God and teaching and preaching about Jesus. When he was cut, what bled out of him? It was the gospel of Jesus. For us this morning, when you show up at the hospital or when you get jostled, when you get cut, what, what, what comes out? What spills over? What do others say? They never stopped talking about blank, the Vikings, conspiracy theories, the news. Or is it Jesus? Now, Paul sought to argue and expound. This means explain or testify to convince the Jews about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. And and this would have been stunning. About maybe 8, 10, 12 hours of Paul just walking through the scriptures he would just start genesis 1 1 and just start working through the bible and, and he would show jesus is the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head and then and, and just prophecy after prophecy after prophecy showing that jesus is indeed the christ and what this shows us this morning is that faith in jesus is not a blind faith but it's a reasonable and logical faith that can be shown from the Old Testament. How many of you have done a a trust fall before? You know what that is, where, where, you know, it's usually friends. They say, trust me. And and you either fall forward or fall back. Make sure you get confirmation which you're supposed to do before you do it. And and they'll catch you before you hit the ground. And it shows that you you can trust us and and vice versa. And, And Very often people think faith in Jesus is just like a trust fall, and that's just not true. It requires our minds and logic and has coherent arguments from the Old Testament and the New Testament and historical evidence to show that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and Lord. Uh, As a brief aside, I think this is one of the most underused tools for us in evangelism is inviting people to come and read the scriptures with us and see the claims of the Old Testament, see the claims of Jesus, see the claims of God firsthand through the scriptures. Too many people reject Jesus, having never read any of his words. Paul took 12 hours, and we read later, some believed and some disbelieved. This is the greatest missionary, the greatest student of Old Testament literature, expounding them, and some still didn't believe. What makes us think that 30 minutes with us sort of, you know, pulling out as many Christian words as possible will will do it. It Invite people to read the scriptures with us so that they might see God's word firsthand. We we believe that the scriptures are profitable for teaching and reproof and rebuke, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing through bone and marrow. Now, the result of this, as we said already, in verse 24, where some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. I think this just reminds us that we shouldn't be discouraged in the midst of our evangelism. Paul took 12 hours, and some still didn't believe. Now, leads us to the quote in 26 and 27, which he cites from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And it says this, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, in Isaiah's context, the prophet gets a vision from God to speak to the people this word of warning and judgment with an implicit appeal to repent. That the prophets hear, I'm speaking these words of truth, you're you're supposed to hear but you're not going to hear because you're dull of heart. And very similarly, Paul quotes Isaiah nearly verbatim to imply the continued hardness of heart of the people of Israel in rejecting not only God's prophets but now rejecting the very Messiah himself. They're like children, little children that cover their eyes and say, well, I can't see you, so you can't see me. Or an immature teenager that might plug their ears and say, I don't want to hear it anymore. I can't hear you. These are noise-canceling headphones, Mom. There is a deadly spiritual blindness that results in condemnation and judgment. What Paul is doing here is giving a prophetic eye poke, a poke in the eye to shock them into hearing his words. Jesus is the litmus test. You're either for him or you're against him. There is no half-hearted way. You cannot be lukewarm when you come to Jesus. And he wants to make this crystal clear for his Jewish audience. You're missing the boat. Jesus is the one person you need to grapple with in this moment. You cannot go on being a faithful Jew if you ignore the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who has come. Paul is poking them in the eye and saying, this is what you need to hear. Don't walk away. And yet, that's precisely what happens. They walk away. Some believe, some disbelieve, but they all just leave at that point. You're either for the Lord or you reject him to your own peril. This morning, where are you when it comes to Jesus? I know in a group this size, those watching online, some of us may not be walking with Jesus, may not know Jesus, or... Perhaps too many want a Jesus of their own making. I think this is one of the challenges in our culture today. We want a Jesus of love and tolerance, but with no hell, no judgment, and no hard words. We want a Jesus that will just love us for who we are, never telling us that we're sinful, not forgiving us of our sins, but just patting us on the head when we're down. What you want is a golden retriever not Jesus. Or some of us want a Jesus that will be conformed to the values of our age, blessing sin, enabling wickedness in the name of love. Or some of us think Jesus just needed more and better PR and marketing. You know, Jesus, you should have just not said that eating the flesh and drinking the blood stuff and the picking up your cross. And if you just kept to love and tolerance, man, you'd just get a lot more followers. We want a Jesus of our own making. And yet the Bible is clear this morning that you receive Jesus on his terms or you do not receive him at all. And this is perhaps the biggest issue of our day. We want the world to revolve around us and our glory. And yet when we gather together and we sit under his word, we recognize once again That the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about us and our feelings, but it's about the glory of God, the exaltation of Jesus. The song that we sung, show us Christ, not show me my glory as it reflects in you. And so this morning, when we participate in the mission of God, what do we discover? We discover that life is better with Jesus than without. We discover joy and sorrow, pleasures forevermore, infinite love, cleansing by his blood, undeserved redemption, and lavish grace. And so for those who aren't following Jesus this morning, we would invite you to come and receive Jesus on his terms. And his terms, they're not fair, because if it was fair, we'd all burn in hell. His terms are gracious and merciful. Now we come to the conclusion, verses 30 and 31. Paul remains in Rome for two additional years at his own expense, renting this apartment, continuing to do what he was called and commissioned to do, proclaim the kingdom and teach about Jesus. Now just step back with me for a moment and remark how amazing this is. For those that, you know, are kind of travel a lot for work. You realize, you know, you could take a three-day trip and get about eight hours of work done, maybe, but then you got to get on the airplane and take the Uber down to the airport, and traveling just takes a lot of time. And now, Paul, he's not traveling anymore. He just gets to minister and preach the gospel to the soldier who's chained next to him and anyone who comes. And how does he do it? Look with me at the verse... 31, the end of verse 31. He's teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with what? All boldness and without hindrance. This is so amazing. He's entirely hindered. He's in chains, and yet the gospel is not bound, and the gospel is not chained. There is no hindrance. So God has turned false and slanderous accusations against Paul to bring him to Rome, the center of power, to have what? He now has a state-sponsored ministry hub that's under governmental protection. No more riots. No more beatings. I got a soldier right here. He has his own personal bodyguard. That's what he has. Yes, he's chained to him. And he also has a captive audience when it comes to sharing the gospel. And every six hours, he gets a new guy. Talk about God working all things together for good. Paul's situation does not dictate his effectiveness. I want you to hear this. Paul's situation does not dictate his effectiveness or limit God's grace. And when it comes to the various situations that each of us experience and face today, do we immediately think, well, God can't work in this? Or do we think like Paul? Where's the silver lining? Maybe I have a personal bodyguard and a ministry hub in Rome where anyone can come and no one can stop me. God establishes Rome as this base for fruitful ministry under the protection of the Roman government so that Paul, in the letter to the Philippians, writes this. Philippians 1.13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard or the whole predatorium and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. The word of God resounds forward. He goes on to write in Philippians, that his imprisonment emboldened the brothers so that they are even much more bold to speak the word without fear. And if you look at the end of Philippians, Philippians 4, right at the end of his letter, what does he say? Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. There are brothers, Christians, who are now part of Caesar's household as a result of Paul's ministry in Rome. And they are now greeting the brothers at Philippi. This is the stunning sovereignty of God. What we think is Sure to be the terminal end, the the muzzling of Paul becomes his greatest microphone to the world. This is the power and sovereignty of God. In Rome, his little apartment under house arrest, it becomes a writer's retreat for him as well. It's in Rome that he writes Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians, and the letter to Philemon during this two-year period of imprisonment. How many of us have received encouragement from one of those letters? And it was all possible because he's under house arrest. Where Satan thinks, I got the final hand. He's chained, and yet the word of God is not bound. It's not chained. It continues to go forward. Let me just highlight for us this morning, Paul serves as an example of simple, ongoing faithfulness. And that's what we need in the church today. Simple, ongoing faithfulness. Whatever the circumstances, wherever God has placed you. For Paul, in Antioch, he's preaching Christ. In Jerusalem, he's shipwrecked, he's preaching Christ. Whether he's beaten and imprisoned, he's preaching Christ. When he's on house arrest, chained to a soldier, he preaches Christ. And for us this morning, whether at work or in the classroom or in the dorms, in the retirement home, In the neighborhood, at the hospital, at the grocery store, whether you're in the boardroom or driving the school bus, God has given you a situation and circumstances so that you might walk by faith and be faithful to show Christ. Acts shows us that it's not about finding the perfect moment, but it's about walking by faith with our hope and confidence in the resurrection and in the preaching and teaching of Jesus. So what are we giving our lives to this morning? Are we waiting for the very perfect moment? Maybe when, you know, that one person says, yes, can you please share with me what, who Jesus is? Or, or are we seeing every moment as an opportunity to proclaim the name of Jesus? Now, that's the first half. Now we come to part two, how the story continues. Luke wants us to see that the story has not ended. We we already talked a little bit about how Acts ends. John Christendom, an early church father, wrote this about the ending of Acts. He says, the author, Luke, brings his narrative up to this point and leaves the hearer thirsty so that he fills up the lack by himself through reflection. I think that's precisely right. He writes in this way, leaving open-ended questions so that we would see that this is the book that doesn't end, but it continues in us so that we might reflect and say, so what's next? Not just what's next for Paul, but what's next for us. And what I want to do, there's this rhetorical or narrative silence. What Luke doesn't say, what he doesn't include is just as important as what he does include. And so what I want to do is I want to draw out five simple themes that we've seen throughout this series in Acts as reminders from the book of Acts and the implications of those things for us this morning. So the first is this. God establishes his his church to reveal Christ. God establishes his church to reveal Christ. Acts recounts for us how God establishes the church, the people of God, not the building, but the people of God as his sole instrument for worldwide transformation. He could have did it a million ways, and yet he chose to gather the people of God that would reveal his glory. And and that poses a problem, because I know that we're growing up in a generation, there is a generation that's up and coming that looks at any institution, any long-standing institution with skepticism. Or perhaps you look at institutions with power with skepticism. You're, You're weary of those institutions. And yet God has given the church the very keys of the kingdom. And so what's the implication for us this morning? Christians are to devote their lives to building the church. We are to give our lives to Christ's church, to live out our collective calling as the church of Christ. No Christian would say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. It's like saying, I really like you, but I hate your wife. You're not my friend, if that's what you say. It's the bride of Christ. And yes, pockmarks and all, And yet there will be a day when the church of Christ will be blemish free. And so I want to call us not to neglect the commitment to the church. This is where we devote ourselves to the Bible's teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer that we would be united under the lordship of Jesus, sharing our belongings, holding our possessions loosely, being generous to support the ministries of the church when we live out our collective calling. We will shine as lights in the world, even if we look weird to our neighbors. And that's precisely what we're supposed to do. Number two, God has given us the power of the Holy Spirit. God has given us the power of the Holy Spirit. He told his disciples in John 14, I'm leaving and I'm sending you a helper. It's going to be better with him. And he's going to teach you all that I taught you. He's going to bring to mind all that I ever said. And this was fulfilled in Acts 2 at Pentecost. The implication for us this morning is that every single believer here this morning has been given the power of the Holy Spirit. Every single believer. The Spirit empowers us to speak the gospel, to endure suffering, to understand His Word, to apply Christ's comfort and to bring conviction. If you're a believer this morning, maybe you walked in and you just feel broken. You just feel like the burdens in your backpack are so heavy, 50, 60, 70 pounds of weights on your shoulders that you just can't shake. Maybe you think you're too young or too old to be useful to God. Maybe my time passed me up. Maybe I'll wait another 20 years before I can be of use. Maybe you think you're too awkward or quiet or shy to be fruitful in evangelism or you're too sinful to be used by God or you're too broken and weak and frail to experience his love and joy. Maybe you're too messy to be lovable. Those are all lies from the pit of hell. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit as confirmation of his work, that we've been washed clean by the infinitely precious blood of Jesus and so that we would know and feel his presence and know his delight over us, that he sings over us. And God has given us the Holy Spirit so we would walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh and that we would pray and ask God for an awareness of his love and grace. If you're ever feeling down and, and you feel distant from God, I would just encourage you, take that moment to pause and to pray, God, help me to know your love through the power of your Spirit. And now as I go and read your word, show me. And I think that's a prayer that he just loves to answer. I will just testify. I have personally experienced that time and time again. When I have felt weak, when I have felt down, when I have felt way in over my head, I have prayed and asked the Lord, give me more of your spirit so that I would know that you're powerfully at work in weakness. And the Lord continues to answer again and again and again. The Lord loves to meet his children by the power of his spirit so that you would walk by faith and not by sight. Number three, God calls us to proclaim the name of Jesus. He calls us to proclaim the name of Jesus. We see this pattern in Acts, that Jesus alone is the name that saves, and everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. How are they going to call on him then, in whom they have never heard? And the implication then is that we are to be a people, who is eager and ready and willing to have the name of Jesus on our lips, inviting people to study the scriptures with us, being quick to show them Christ. Look at Paul at the end there. Verse 30, it says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and what did he do? He welcomed all who came to him. Jews and Gentiles, anyone who walks through these doors, I'll talk with them. And that's what I want our church to be like. Anyone who walks through these doors is welcome to come and discover the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. I pray that each of our front doors would be like that, that we would welcome all. Whatever your political persuasion, whatever your views on sex and gender, whatever your views on, you know, you name it all the contentious issues on our day. You're welcome through these doors so that we might show you the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. He'll deal with all your issues and he'll deal with all of my issues. But that our doors would be open and ready to welcome all those who would come and find Jesus as the living bread, as the living water, as the hope, not just of Israel, but as the hope for each one of us. Number four, God empowers us to be bold and courageous in suffering. Some believed Paul, some didn't. And some probably, in fact, hated Paul. And that's going to be true of us. And we don't need to worry, we don't need to fret, we don't need to be anxious. We just need to be ready to live faithfully as followers of Christ. God empowers us to be bold and courageous in suffering. There will be a day, likely, or it has already come where we'll say with Peter, whether it's right in the sight of God to judge, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So be ready to stand firm for Jesus. Choose today who you will serve, Jesus or Caesar, faith or fear, courage or Or capitulation. Stand firm, be bold and courageous, and God will indeed perfect His power in the midst of our weakness, giving us words to say in that very moment by the Holy Spirit. And number five, God has sent us on a mission to magnify Christ and save sinners. He sent us on a mission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded of you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is why we have our mission statement. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ christ that's why we're going to spend three weeks looking at that statement section by section by section so that we would know what do we exist for what are we supposed to do how are we supposed to live we are the people of god who sit under the word of god who are sent to proclaim the son of god in the power of the spirit of god all for the resounding glory of god that's why we exist brothers and sisters Do you wake up each morning saying, That's my purpose? I exist for that. Yes, I do a bunch of other things and love my family and go to work and care for others and be hospitable, but I exist for this. Let me conclude here. Acts ends, but Jesus continues to work through his church. It's not the end of the church, but it's the beginning of the church. It's not the end of the gospel's impact on our world, but it's very much so the beginning. This is not the end of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus continues to work throughout his church, throughout each and every single one of us, so that the gospel would continue to go forth and save sinners. This is not the end of the mission, but merely the start of the gospel's advance to the very ends of the earth. So Acts leaves the story open-ended for us here. It's abrupt. It's an enigma. It's maybe unsatisfying precisely so that we would say, so what's next? How does he continue to work? And here's the thing. Even though Luke stops writing, there is writing still taking place. And what's that writing? It's names being written into the book of life. People are being saved every single day. Every single day. Names are being written into the book of life, and and we have the opportunity to participate in this glorious mission to join Jesus in causing his name to go forward so that more and more names would be written in that book. So the end of Acts says to us, how is Jesus continuing to work in and through you for his glory, for the advance of the church, and for the fame of the name of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, make us people who are eager and winsome and bold to speak the name of Jesus. And then would you open the floodgates, cause your spirit to blow so that there would be dozens, hundreds, even thousands that would come to saving faith in Jesus through us in our neighborhoods and through our global partners around the world. 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading the passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ.